Hello and good afternoon or good morning or hello wherever you are in the world. My name is Maurizio Cecconi. I am the president of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine and connecting from my hospital, from Humanitas Research Hospital in Milan today. And I am absolutely delighted to welcome our speaker today for the 30 minutes with uh, Dr. Arthur Quisera. Hello, Arthur, and welcome. Hi, Maurizio. Thank you for having me. Very, very nice to, to see you. And uh, before we spend this time together, I just would like to give a short uh, introduction, so your short bio. Uh, Arthur is a friend, is a member of our community now for, for a number of uh, years. He's a Ugandan anesthesiologist and intensivist who serves as a senior lecturer in anesthesiology and critical care at Makerere University College of Health Sciences in Uganda. He also serves as a staff intensivist at the Mulago National Referral Hospital Intensive Care Unit. Is a member of the Uganda Ministry of Health Scientific Advisory Board for COVID-19, and I know that we work together on a number of projects also with the WHO. Uh, is part of several international collaborations looking at acute care in resource-limited settings with a particular emphasis on sepsis management and anesthesia-intensive care education. And his research is centered on epidemiology, pathophysiology, and management of acute organ dysfunction and the corresponding life support intervention in low resource settings. Due to the skill set he has, he is a member of the Ministry of Health Infrastructure Committee, tasked with setting up ICUs in Uganda 15 Regional Referral Hospital. He is also the chair of the National Intensive Care Committee, with the task of developing the National Intensive Care Strategic Plan to guide the expansion of Uganda intensive care capacity to at least 4,000 acute care beds, which is very ambitious, and maybe you can tell us a bit more about this data. And together with a team from the University of Cambridge, is developing a ventilator to be used in hard-to-reach places in the world. So with this introduction, everyone understands that you're a busy man, Arthur. And, uh, first of all, uh, welcome again, but uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, uh, we know where you work, but uh, what's your daily uh, work uh, in the place where you work? Yeah, thank you for that very kind uh, introduction. Well, um, right now, maybe for the last two years, a lot of the work has moved uh, from uh, the clinical domain now into more maybe a more program and research approach. I have still given time in the COVID ICU. I've not done actually non-COVID ICU work since. Um, we have a hospital that was under renovation, which is the National Referral Hospital. And we were a bit lucky because we had uh, just renovated from a small six-bed ICU to you know, almost 40-bed ICU capacity. And that is what is now doing the COVID ICU National Referral for the whole country. So the day-to-day -day is... Uh, a bit, it's really COVID now. I can, I can imagine. Well, let, me, let me go into that. Uh, if I have to go from six beds to 40 beds in the <laughs> hospital, I will struggle. And one of the things that I kept repeating to the whole world and the news and media for the last year was that uh, a ventilator is not an ICU bed. You need uh, people with skills that. Um, yeah. How is it in a limited resource settings? I imagine you, you say that you are lucky, but I imagine that there are some challenges even where you work. Absolutely. I mean, we, we struggled so much with uh, with human resource. I mean, like you're right, and I've, you know, I've followed you on, on Twitter and 
you know, it's not just ventilators. In our, in our way, the Ministry of Health, we had already started discussions before COVID about improving ICU capacity. They are tired of seeing my face. For the last 10 years, I've been banging down their doors. We came up with the, some training plans for human resource, but as you know, it's not very easy. During the COVID pandemic, there were things we couldn't do. We couldn't prone patients because you have one nurse, one doctor, and then seven ventilated patients as a ratio. So how are you going to prone a patient? That, that is an example. So it was difficult. How did you cope with that? Did you have to uh, use other uh, human resources, non-clinical human resources? Oh, yes. Resources? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Families? We, co mm -hmm. we co-opted a lot of, uh, actually right now, which is also a good thing, it's a lot of the human resources that were non-ICU got co-opted. Uh, the Ministry of Health did uh, oxygen, basic oxygen therapy trainings, uh, basic critical illness uh, trainings uh, throughout the regional referral hospitals. So you have a lot of non-ICU people who are now have some capability to provide oxygen therapy and also for the conscious patients to encourage them to self-prone. That was one task shifting yeah. example. Yeah. 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 Now we're, we're, I, I keep saying to friends from limited resource settings that actually that you have helped us also in high resource uh, income settings to, to learn to be creative because that was the first time for myself at least to experience <laughs> resources compared to what was coming with, with COVID. Yeah. Um, Tell me, Arthur, how is the, um, you know, let go of COVID, but before COVID, how many ICU beds did you have in Uganda? How big is Uganda in terms of population and, uh, you know, okay. and how many intensives do you have in Uganda? <laughs> so Uganda is, uh, is a 40, it has 40 million people. It's about slightly about 250,000 square kilometers. Um, and uh, we have uh, the, the structure is you have one big national referral hospital for tertiary care, and then you have regional referral hospitals that are spread out across the country, 15 to 20 of them. Uh, in total, we had a, uh, a paper we published uh, by Atumania that showed we had, because we were looking for functionality, we had only 55 functional ICU beds in the whole country. So you, you, yeah, just again, like you said, it's not an ICU bed is not just a ventilator. You found many places where they had the some sort of infrastructure, but no human resource to run them. So we had twelve functional ICUs and a total of fifty-five beds. That has increased, obviously, um, but um, that is the practice. When it comes to intensivists, we like many parts of Africa. Uh, intensive care is driven is mostly anesthesia driven because of the historical nature of the specialty. Um, and it's not it's not uncommon in Uganda. Our anesthesiologists have um, benefited from I mean, an improved curriculum. We adopted the cobatrice that used to be the ACSM a long time ago to change and improve training. And so we also have intensivists who are fellowship trained, Canada, India, um, and, and also parts of Europe. And um, so for those who've had extra training in intensive care, they're not more than five or six. But the total number of anesthesiologists is coming. Who can handle themselves in an ICU for a general ICU is about maybe 100. Okay, very yeah. interesting. And, and, and let me ask a question about COVID. We get a lot of uh, mixed information coming from different countries. I feel very lucky, very privileged. I, I was probably one of the first persons in Europe to get a vaccine, uh, even at the end of last year. And we, I was lucky that um, some of our governments, they gave priority to healthcare workers to get vaccinations. Has yes. it been the same in Uganda? Um, how, yes. how is yes. the vaccination rate going? 
Yes, I think the ministry has done right by many things when it comes to, in this regard, for healthcare workers. So we, the first time the vaccines came because they were donations to the COVAX facility, the healthcare workers were prioritized as well as the vulnerable population. Okay. So, yes, they were offered the benefit of the vaccine. And how is the vaccination going now at the moment in the population? Well, so far we've had about 1.4 million doses um, given. I, I don't know the ratio of double dose or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but it's about 1.4 million and, and, and ongoing. And there's also an, another batch of vaccines that has come in from, I think, again through COVAX from JJ, I think so. Yeah. I'm not very sure. No, and I have to say, I am pleased that at least healthcare workers got access to this. Maybe you can tell us a bit more. I know that you've been very active in setting up a network of ICU colleagues in Africa through WhatsApps and, and stuff. Yeah. Is this the case in all of Africa that healthcare workers have been given access to vaccines already? Well, it seems to be the case. Uh, of course, the other thing you have to understand, it's one thing to be offered, it's another thing for the uptake. Because the uptake has also been, uh, initially wasn't so great because of all the misinformation that came around vaccination and so on. But I, we have a WhatsApp group of about 35 African countries. Uh, we've not done much in the way of surveying uh, vaccination. The focus has been largely on has has your work been better and and, and self care? But um, I'm sure this is a question we can ask them. But from many, from a few, it seems that healthcare workers were were prioritised. Yeah, that's good. But I'm, I have to say, I I feel sometimes coming from a privileged background that uh, it's uh, we should have done probably more, even as a society, to be more vocal about access in the population. Um, you know, we are talking about percentages here of hesitant people or no access that are in the region of 20%, which is still very high in my opinion. But when I looked at the rest of the world, I really think that there should have been probably a better coordination and uh, a fairer access to vaccines. I think we, we, we should do better than that. I, 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 agree with, I agree with you, Maurizio. I think it will get better with time. Yeah, you're very kind with us. <laughs> <laughs> um, Anyway, let's move to, to something else. The, uh, as you know, the society also with the new restructuring of, the, of our SOPs, uh, very recently we are taking global intensive care really as part of a society. We think that it's our uh, role to help uh, being in this network. You know, you've been great in this and uh, we hope that you will bring uh, more and more your contribution. Um, what, um, how has been the, the network of relationships with uh, outside of Africa during this pandemic? Uh, how is it going with the collaborations? And I'm very interested to know, you know, what, what can we do for you? Yes, well, we've been happy, lucky that we had a, group, a small group of people. About 10 years ago, we started the Global Working Group for the European Society, and we have been able to write some papers to guide, uh, you know, common issues like sepsis and so on in low-income countries. And I have been very privileged to make very many friends, such as yourself and others, and I have learned a lot from them. They've taught me how to write, they've taught me how to do ICU work, and, and there's ongoing mentorship. Um, Africa, for example, does not have a society, you know, and uh, and it's not very easy because I also know that it's very difficult to get engaged in advocacy when you're trying to survive, you know, when you're very poorly paid and then you have a lot of work on your plate. Uh, and, and and so it's, it's, it's hard. It has also cost me personally just to be involved in ESICM work or the, some of the work 
But, you know, um, I've been lucky in some times that sometimes ESICM has supported me. I think that uh, the, the ESICM can actually, I think we have now a, a critical mass of, of, of well-informed uh, doctors in Africa, ICU doctors. Most of us are anesthesiologists anyway, but to come together and have a group uh, through maybe the global working group of the ESICM so that it can mentor the creation of our own society for, for our, own, our own growth and identity and focus. And COVID has really opened for African governments also the importance of intensive care. So it's a big opportunity for the ESICM to come and help us and, and work with us to make this year. We will be delighted and uh, and I, I'm really, you know, honest when I said before, you know, that I've learned a lot. I was speaking a lot of the very first days of the crisis in uh, in Lombardy. We've, I remember with Melvin Nair or Flavia Machado and asking advice, you know, how do you deal when you are so overwhelmed by number of patients coming in. So I really think we can all learn a lot from each other, and this is being a great example. But we would be delighted, of course, to... Yes, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I must add that during the COVID pandemic, we because the pandemic didn't hit Africa hard first, so we were observing. So we attended a lot of the webinars that the ESICM did. There are a lot of publications from the Surviving Sepsis campaign about how to manage COVID patients. So by the time a lot of the by the time the wave hit us hard, we already had some 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 nice information from 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 you guys. So that helped us a lot. So. Um, Arthur, I think you're in a unique position because I, I know that you have experience also of ICU work, at least you, you have a lot of contacts also in Europe uh, as well. Um, yeah. If you have to, to define what is the biggest difference of running an intensive care bed in Africa or in Europe? Is it mainly the number of ICU beds? Is medicine different? Uh, can you tell us a bit about it? I think, okay, that's an interesting question. One, we first have to understand our, the epidemiology of acute illness in our setting. 99% of acute illness in Africa doesn't happen in the ICU, okay? Um, what I saw in my experience working in North America, in Europe, is uh, one, the population is generally older. That's the first thing. Um, you have very good pre-hospital care. That's the second thing. And thirdly, um, the, the training is very good and there is homogeneity of practice, which is very evidence-based. So those are some of the differences. If you come to a hospital in an African setting, it's very likely that the ICU provider will be anesthesia-driven and may or may not have access to, to evidence-based practice. But some of the evidence that comes from the West, from Europe, America, might not does not apply. I mean, we've seen the FIST trial, we've seen the fluid study in Zambia, and so on and so forth. So um, the other thing, obviously, is, is I think the, the, you have, you can feel a lot of wealth in ICU practice. You can, you know, I cannot make the mistake of ripping a, a CV, a central line, a central line uh, pack, and and not using it. I have to use it. Whilst in, in the West, you rip it, oh, the patient doesn't need it. Okay, and you throw it away. In my I'm giving you just an example. There is some wastage, but uh, I, I like to say, be philosophical and say that these are societies that have worked very hard to get to where they are. Um, not that it can it be a justification for that, but, you know, they can afford it. <laughs> just put it that way. But there are also a lot of maybe some wasteful practices, but I will not go into that. 
I, I'm very, very interested in what you just said about some trials. Uh, can you comment a bit more on the FIST trial and maybe we come back to other trials later? <laughs> yes, I think the FIST trial was one of, the, you know, intuitively we had always been taught that, you know, um, a fluid bowler saves life without going much into the physio pathophysiology of it. And um, I was lucky that the first trial, the large part of it was conducted in Mulago by our colleagues, uh, Chiguli and Poka. And we were we happened to observe some of the, you know, not the results per se, because it was blinded, but we happened to be there to see it happening. So what it did teach me, the first thing is that we can actually do some of these things ourselves. We can start to actually ask First of all, set our own research prioritization. So there was obviously some criticism about PIST uh, in parts of the West, and I could understand why, because maybe genomic differences, practice differences as well. Uh, but in our setting, just like PIST, and, you know, just don't just give fluids to someone who's critically ill, especially when you can't support the complications. That is if, I, if I can say, don't just give fluids to me, that's one of the biggest learning I had in my career, which I say now all the time. So I don't mean yeah. it only to, to your setting. Um, yeah, I'm a more conservative type of guy. For fluid, uh, at least. Uh, and Arthur, the, have there been other studies? I know you, you are always in contact and are always up to date. Have there been other studies or consensus guidelines that you saw, okay, that's interesting. It's coming out there, but actually this does not apply at all. In my settings, so. oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, they are savage. Just... No, please, please give me some. Don't be politically correct now. You, you want me to become enemies with scientists? <laughs> no, I mean, look, I think um, uh, this, I will focus more on the studies that apply to us that we think about. Studies, Europe has been very good with studies, especially when it comes to oxygenation and respiratory support. Uh, some studies, like you know. Um, you know, things like sedation for neuromuscular blockade. I'm not saying it's not important, but I always think about, but we have to first have the neuromuscular blockers first, that sort of thing, and be able to sustain them for 48 hours in a patient, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, there have been sedation studies. It, a lot of those have got to do, when I say, when I brush them aside, it's more about the resource-limited nature I was going to say, probably if you have eight ventilated patients and one nurse, you're, you're not going to do sedation holds every morning in that situation. You, probably, you have exactly. to prioritize and do it in a slightly different way. Yeah. Exactly. And also, we've, what I learned from sedation, we actually have done some small clinical trials of ourselves. We recently did a sedation using ketamine versus the midazolam trial. We, we're just going to submit the manuscript uh, so whoever accepts would like, like to see it. So just to say, look, that you can also look at your own armamentarium, what you can use to see if you can improve um, outcomes for these patients. So we, we have um, Adrian Wong is the chair of our social media and digital committee and Sugumo Luzania is a consultant in the, in the NHS and they are following and sending questions. Uh, I just have a question for you is, uh, um, what about family involvement and interaction? How it is in your uh, intensive care unit? Are they open ICUs? Are families allowed all the time pre-COVID and with COVID, of course? Well, with COVID, we were not accepting them. But what we did in the COVID ICU was we had a phone in the COVID ICU where the families could phone in and, and speak to their loved ones. Pre-COVID, uh, we, uh, we have had, in many of the ICUs, we actually did a study that looked at end-of-life 
what, what people thought. People think that, oh, in Africa, people are more stoic about death and, you know, that, oh, it's God's will and so on and so forth. But the study told us that families actually don't take it very straightforward. They still want to be, uh, that the patients get very good care. They still want to understand what's going on. So it's the same, I think, it's a global thing. Uh, uh, when we allow, we still have a more regimental approach. Where, in other words, you have eight to five, you know, like seven to eight o'clock, then you block that time, and then um, 12 to midday where families can visit. But I know some places, like one of the ICUs that I used to work in, where we had a, a permissive, you could come in any time to talk to your to talk to your relative. The other thing I want to say is that we involve, because of the low nursing numbers, we involve our attendants a lot more in bedside care of the patients. For example, when it comes to feeding and the patient is feeding by an NG tube, we teach the family how to, to, to give the feeds through the NG tube. So there's also a tendency towards more permissive involvement in care, in bedside care, because of the resource limited nature. That's very interesting. And I have to say, I think even in, uh, in high resource settings, I think that could, uh, could lead to a, a stronger experience for families as well. And, uh, and there is maybe a literature also that healthcare workers, knowing the families around are also a little bit more careful with hand washing <laughs> and- Yes, I've seen that too. Yes, absolutely, yes. Um, another question that we have, Arthur, is the, um, from an African perspective, not just where you work, um, how do you see the future of ICU in Africa over the next 10, 15 years? It's going to be, um, I think it's, one, it's going to grow. It's going to, there's going to be, a, a, I think there's more acceptance that, um, that it's something, traditionally the attitude has been, oh, intensive care is expensive care. But I think there's going to be a more willingness and openness by African governments to, to include it as part of the general care of the population. I have seen this with, the, with our own government as well. Our government has become so open and willing, but just understanding. Also, I think that there might be, you might see an explosion of research from us. Um, again, the growth of uh, you know, the internet has made it, with internet penetration, it has made it a lot easier. I also see an increasing role for social media in uh, in intensive care. You know, in terms of um, um, sharing information, we have already seen this with the African WhatsApp group and other groups. Um, I also see. I'm worried also about uh, antimicrobial resistance. That is when it, the land maybe the negative thing. Yeah, that's what I can think about right now. Uh, the emergence of emergency care, pre-hospital care, I think we might drive a lot of uh, what we call preventative critical care. I think that might be a possibility. And I like what you said, that we will see a lot of research coming from you there, and I think we will be delighted to see that. We already see a lot coming up. Uh, what, what are you doing? Are you using your network to set up a research infrastructure in Africa and uh, also it's for trials as well? Yeah, I think for now it's a, it's a conversation with colleagues from across Africa. Uh, in Uganda, we have um, we have just finished uh, a large multi-center observational study. Um, we have a little bit of some research experience. We are about to set up a, a multi-center clinical trial in respiratory support strategies, frugal technologies, just your basic high flow versus NIV versus not high NIV but CPAP, so, some sort of uh, I won't say copy and paste of the floral rally trial, but 
with a bit more modification and innovation. So that will come out soon. You will see some, some more research from Uganda soon. Sure, we'll be delighted to have it on our platform as well. Yeah. Yes, if we, have, uh, if we have a lot more collaboration from ESICM, because we are still learning how to do research. It's not just about the, the book knowledge, but the administration, the conduct, and, and, and so on. We have uh, built on the on the all the HIV research that was done. It left a lot of uh, infrastructure for research, like ethical committees and some knowledge. But we now we need to move it to the more to critical care and the other areas. I, I, I'm sure that outside of this interview, we can speak more about that collaboration because we would like you to be involved, of course. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, we have the last few minutes. What are the research priorities since we are on the topic in, uh, in emergency care and ICU in Africa at the moment? Okay, well, um, for now, just for now, the first research priority will be just describing what we have in terms of resources, in terms of uh, patient presentations, demographics. I think that's very, very important because, like I said, 99% of critical illness, for now, I, you you can be sure it's happening outside of ICU, what happens to those patients. And then the next level would be to, after knowing that, then what can we do about them? You know, then phenoty phenotyping disease, uh, is it, you know, sepsis, ARDS, or actually, you no know, acute hypoxemic respiratory failure phenotypes. Can we uh, improve education? Because for me, that's also another important thing. Um, and identifying the critically ill and knowing when to refer and what to do. So that is just broadly speaking. That's a personal perspective. No, well, that's, that's the perspective we are interested in. The, <laughs> I, I have one last question that uh, um, is coming from some people watching. Is also In this pandemic, we've seen all sorts of treatments. Uh, luckily, there have been some large trials that have uh, come with some important answers, some on very expensive drugs that didn't even make it in some of the uh, countries in Europe, for instance, but some very cheap and widely available drugs like dexamethasone. Um, what has been your experience with the use of non-evidence-based medicine drugs, but also then with the availability of life-saving drugs when they were proven to be effective? Well, I'll start by, of course, the most important life-saving drug we had, we had trouble with was oxygen. Um, thankfully, that, I mean, that we should never forget that. We were lucky in our setting that we have, I have colleagues who are very severe and we were going with the evidence. So dexamethasone is freely available in our setting everywhere. And people were very quite were quick with the uptake. You know, our, our case management uh, clinical guidance was very quick. We did have some renders around, but... Uh, because the, the data was still half, half and half, we never really bothered much with it, but at least for dexamethasone yet. For the rest, it was really down to the doctors to, to make a personal decision. We have seen ivermectin and so on, but we've stayed away from those. Yes, we've stayed away from that from those as a, an official ministry position. Okay. Now, the, Arthur is coming to the end of this talk. It was very, very enjoyable for me, but I'm going to leave you the last uh, few seconds just to send a message and say something that you would like to say about intensive care. It doesn't need to be about Africa, just a message that you think it's important that the world hears from you today. 
Oh, I wish I wish I'd prepared. I think I want to thank my all intensive care colleagues around the world for all the work. Um, I mean, when I say colleagues, everyone from biomedical engineers to physiotherapists to nurses to doctors, whether you're a trainee or a specialist, it's been a very difficult last two years. I just want to say, keep it up. The world actually appreciates what you do. And if anything, um, do not give up. And thank you for the work there. Ladies and gentlemen, it was Arthur Quisera. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.